Have you ever thought about how amazing, really amazing life is? It's March 2015, I'm in a jazz club in Greenwich Village, and Jonas Mekas, the filmmaker, who's 92 at the time, is on stage, and he's just said those words. There's kind of a nervous ripple in the audience, because people don't know quite how to take it. I'm in the back at a table of Lithuanian opera singers. I'm 55 years old, in the middle of a divorce, asking myself, have I ever thought about life that way? Probably a couple times over the years. But by this point, I've been following Jonas for about three months. And I realized that that's the way Jonas sees the world all the time. So that, counselors, is our challenge here tonight. How do we train our brains to think about how amazing, really amazing life is and to think about it all the time. You might say, no, we can't do that, we're lawyers. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, I'd have agreed with you. But Jonas is one of six people all over the age of 85 who changed the way I look at life and helped me understand that I have carry around with me everything I need to be happy and filled with wonder, even on my bad days. And so do you. When I told friends of mine I was going to write a book about happiness, they were very supportive. They said, what? You? <laughs> you are the last person to write a book about happiness. Because by nature, I am a grumposaurus. I'm a newspaper guy. We don't do happy. And I've used my anger and my dissatisfaction as the fuel to get me going. And it worked. I have a good job, I have a roof over my head, I live with a fashion model who turns heads everywhere we go with her good looks and her sense of style. <laughs> I had all the circumstances of a good life, but none of those things were making me happy because I was putting all my focus onto the things I didn't have, not on what I had. The professional accomplishments I wanted, the perfect marriage that I saw, in movies or on TV, all the things I wanted to do. I was focusing on what isn't, not on what is. I even saw happiness that way as something that some people win in the genetic lottery, or else it was something that I had to find or seek out. You know, I was looking at that old cliche of the water glass and seeing only the empty part of it at the top and not seeing the water at the bottom of it. And I was wondering why I was always thirsty. In 2015, I set out to write a year-long series in the failing New York Times <laughs> about people age 85 and up, because as Diane said, they're one of the fastest growing age groups in the country. When I was born, there were fewer than a million, and now there's a little more than six million. So you seem like nice people for lawyers, and I don't want to scare you, but Imagine there suddenly being six times as many teenagers running around. So with all these older people, I wanted to know what are their lives like day to day. And I wanted to know from the real experts, the people who are living it. Because so much of what we think we know about old age comes from people who have never been old. It's like everything you ever read about Italy or law school came from people who had never set foot there. And it makes a difference as one of the women in my book is always telling her daughter, I was your age 
but you were never my age. <laughs> my starting point in all of this is my mother, Dorothy, who turned 90 in December. And she says, if you want to know what old age is like, it stinks. <laughs> Some years ago, my mother had a life-threatening infection. And the doctors called my brother and me, and they asked us to authorize them to insert a feeding tube in her stomach to keep her alive long enough for the antibiotics to kick in. I was on assignment in Iraq at the time, so my brother and I talked over these scratchy cell phone connections, barely intelligible. And this is how we're deciding whether our mother lives or dies. If we say no to the feeding tube, she never regains consciousness, and the infection takes her painlessly away. If we approve it and the antibiotics work, she goes back to the life she had before. She has friends, she has an apartment with a view of the river, she goes to the Philharmonic. We consulted her DNR and it said to withdraw care if she couldn't return to a meaningful life. It didn't apply, we approved the feeding tube, and our mother has never quite forgiven us for it. <laughs> My other starting point was a body of research that I wanted to understand, and sociologists call it the paradox of aging, that as much as we worship youth and hard bodies, older people are more content with their lives than younger people. And it didn't make sense to me. How could people whose minds are in decline and whose bodies are in decline be more satisfied with their lives than people in their so-called prime? What did they know? that I didn't know. So I spent a couple months meeting as many people as I could. I went to YMCAs and JCCs and senior centers and nursing homes, and I narrowed it down to six, and I figured I'd follow them for a year and write about the toll that old age was taking on their minds and on their bodies. Because I figured, what else was there to say about old age? And this took me to a, to a man named uh, Fred Jones. And there's Fred. Fred was 87, living alone in a walk-up apartment in Crown Heights, in the process of losing two toes to gangrene. His closest daughter was dying of stage four breast cancer. So there was my story, right? Bad health, socially isolated, not mobile. And I asked Fred, just for contrast, you know, what was the happiest time of your life? And Fred said, right now. Fred was a player. Fred had six kids by four different women. <laughs> and he always had a dirty story or trying to sing like Billy Eckstein or talking about the flashy suits he used to wear to the Savoy Ballroom. One of my first visits to Fred, we went to the supermarket and he cruised the cashiers to see who was the prettiest before checking out. Fred liked to say he was a bon vivant, and he never pronounced it the same way twice. And he was always after me to fix him up with one of those real fine chicks that he was sure I knew, because I too was a bon vivant. So Fred was a lot of fun, but he also had a lesson to teach me, and it was the simplest of lessons, but I think maybe the deepest. He said, my favorite part of the day is waking up in the morning and saying, thank God for another day on my way to 110. So amazing. Fred, this broken down guy losing the two toes, is looking at that same glass of water 
and seeing only the water at the bottom of it and not worrying about what's missing at the top of it. He's focused on what is, not on what isn't. And the water is what we drink, right? The great news is that we can all do that. And it's simple. People have found that if people make note of one thing that they're grateful for on a regular basis, every day, every week, as artificial as that sounds, it changes them. They sleep better, they're more optimistic about the future, they say they have a greater sense of well-being. And there's physical changes as well. Lower blood pressure, better immune function, less inflammation, and lower levels of the stress hormone, cortisol. So I could see why Fred was always happy. The next question is, what did it have to do with old age? Fred had spent most of his life thinking there was some, something that he didn't have was better than what he had. He was, and it led to a lot of the mistakes in Fred's life, and it's why the, we had the six kids by, or four kids by six women. Six kids by four women, sorry. <laughs> the, other, the other would have been too hard. So that was Fred's lesson to me, to be grateful for what is and not worry so much about what isn't. Helen Moses found the second love of her life in the Hebrew home in Riverdale with a man named Howie Zimer. And their on-again, off-again wedding plans have been the best soap opera that I can think of for the last four years. Helen is loud and brassy and beautiful. And she slowed down a lot in the last couple months, but until then, she was always in a fight with someone or other at the nursing home. But she said she and Howie had never had an argument. You want to know why? Because whatever I say goes, right, Howie? <laughs> yes, it does. Wait till I get you home. Howie's 21 years younger, but he had a serious brain injury that made him a lot slower than Helen. And sometimes their conversations just wouldn't quite match up right. And Howie would say, you're the one woman in my lifetime, I mean it. And Helen would say, with impeccable timing, I can't hear you, but it better be good. <laughs> and I sometimes wondered what it was that Helen was getting out of the relationship, because Howie certainly adored her, but he used up a lot of her energy, and he spoke so slowly that she'd often stop listening in the middle. But as I spent time with them, I realized that what Helen got out of it was that how he needed her. And all his disabilities just meant that he'd need her more. She said one time, I take care of him because he's an only child and he had nobody. And then when his mother and father died, he really had nobody except me. I try to be everything to him. I think that I am. So imagine that at 94, wanting to be everything to another person and feeling like you got there. If there's a better definition of a life that's worth living, I don't know what it is. The four other people I followed all had... So that's, I'm sorry, so that's Helen's lesson to me. To measure our lives by how much we do for other people and how valuable we are to them. And to give thanks to the people who let us help them because we benefit from it as much as they do and there's a generosity in letting somebody help you, and maybe even, as in Howie's case, 
a kind of love. And the four others all had powerful lessons to teach. All, again, very simple elemental lessons. But it was the difference between hearing them as words and seeing them lived as lives. And I think they were all pushing us in the direction that any of us who deal with older people should be, which is uh, to think what happens when we stop thinking about old age as a problem to be solved and start thinking about it as a resource to be tapped. Uh, part of my work has been to bear witness to people in this stage of life, and part of it has been to say goodbye. And Jonas Mekis died in January. He was the last of the three men that I was following. The three women are still alive, still going. And it's an incredible privilege to be able to spend time with them in this period. And if I'm ever not able to think of one thing to be grateful for, I hope I have that. And another thing to be grateful for is that all of them gave me, they got me over my fear that someday I might get old. A definition of despair is not being able to imagine a plausible, desirable future for yourself. A fear of old age does that, right? If we're afraid of it, we can't plausibly desire it. And the despair sets in not when we're 90 or 96 like Jonas, but every day on the way there. But the flip side is also true. If we can rethink old age as a period of growth and change, in addition to the loss, we can not only plausibly desire it, but we can give thanks for it now. And it'll color all the days that we have on the way there. Last year, an interviewer asked Jonas Mekis, if you could give any advice to somebody who wanted to be a filmmaker, what would it be? And Jonas's answer was perfect. He said, get a camera. <laughs> so that's it. If you want to be a filmmaker, get a camera. If you want to be happy, choose happiness. Choose gratitude. Choose to be useful to other people. Choose to define yourself by the things you can do, not by the things you can't do. As for me, in the start of 2016, before I'd written a word of my book or knew what I wanted it to say, I wrote down the six words that became the title, happiness is a choice you make. And I taped them up by my bed so I'd see them first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And I didn't really know what to make of them, but just having them there and seeing them all the time was a reminder to me that it was up to me to choose how I wanted to view the things in my life. Happiness, kind of a vague word, right? But the key word in the sentence is really choice. It's a declaration that I'm not defined by the circumstances of my life. I'm the one who gets to tell the story of how I fit into those circumstances. And this declaration is liberating. And the liberation is, I think, the essence of happiness. So happiness isn't the thing you choose, but it's the act of choosing. You know, go back to that jazz club a minute. Jonas Mekas in the beginning asking if you've ever thought about how amazing life is. Life goes on either way. It knows it's amazing. It's up to us to recognize that and to live in it and recognize that what's amazing about life is what is, not what isn't. The things we have, not the things we don't have, or the things that might happen. And Jonas again put this really well. 
We were talking one day about stuff that wasn't going on, and he said, I never worry. I'll start to worry when something happens. Why worry when it's not happening? And then why worry when it happens? You deal with it. You waste time worrying, and it may never happen what you think. Nothing is hopeless. I don't even know what it means, hopeless. And when I understood that, and when I put it together with the lessons I learned from the others, it changed me. Didn't give me washboard abs, didn't teach me to lean in, but it helped me see that these things weren't really that important to me and to focus on the things that were. Time with people that I care about, being useful to other people, valuing each day because my days are every bit as finite as the days that the elders had. But I could be wrong about all of this. In which case, I will have spent all those years living more happily in vain. <laughs> I can live with that. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Paula Spann. Paula was a staff writer at the Washington Post for 20 years. She has been published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Boston Globe, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, New York Magazine, Esquire, and a slew of other publications. Her first book, When the Time Comes, uh, contains stories about the different ways that people care for aging loved ones. And she is currently at work on a second book for Audible about grandparenting. She writes two popular columns for the New York Times called The New Old Age and Generation Grandparent. She also teaches at Columbia University. Welcome, Paula Spann. Uh, thank you. I, I, as I was reading John's remarkable series in the New York Times, like many of us did, uh, as it unfolded over months, I was looking for these shadowy other figures besides the ones that he was writing about. Because some of the people he wrote about, like Jonas Meckes, oh, too bad, we should just leave him up there, um, were flourishing on their own and living very independent lives. And some, like Fred, were on their own um, and probably could have used some help that they didn't have. Um, and others were like most American elders. They needed some kind of long-term care, like Helen and her uh, fiance, if we call him that. Um, they needed help with the activities of daily living. And they either had help from paid helpers, like the staff of the nursing home where Helen and Howie lived, or they had unpaid helpers. So in other words, they needed caregivers, as two-thirds of older people will at some point in their lives. So caregivers are the under-acknowledged, under-supported reality of aging in America. Um, they overwhelmingly are not paid helpers. Most American seniors don't have any paid help at all. What they have is families, uh, spouses, sons, and especially daughters and daughters-in-law, because this is largely a female task. Uh, family care caregivers are the ones shouldering the great majority of responsibility for our aging population. 
And as Rosalind Carter famously said, I'm paraphrasing, everybody either is a caregiver or has been a caregiver or will be a caregiver or will need a caregiver. Family caregivers are the scaffolding that support older people and give them that possibility of good and meaningful lives. So in my allotted 20 minutes, I'm going to pass along, oops, sorry for these peas, pass along some uh, tips that I've picked up for the caregivers among us. Uh, is anybody caring, here caring for an older relative? Uh, no? Wow. That's unusual. Um, and so by the way, um, you may not think of yourself as a caregiver because your relative is managing fairly well uh, on his or her own. But if you are accompanying someone to a doctor's appointment, stopping by with some groceries, picking up prescriptions, filling the pill pack, if you're doing any of that stuff, then congratulations, you are a caregiver. <laughs> Maybe I've added a few to the list here. It's a stressful job, and it only tends to get more demanding. And for some people, the number of years that they spend worrying about a parent's well-being could extend longer, given our lengthy lifespans, than the number of years that they spent worrying about a dependent child. Uh, and most people who do it are also trying to hold on to jobs. So let me tell you uh, a few things I've learned that might be useful to you in this role now or in the future. Um, first, there is such a thing as an adult day program. This is one of the better kept secrets in elder care, in my opinion. Adult day programs allow people to continue living at home because no one ever wants to move. No one ever wants to go to one of those places. They're full of old people. So, um, so eight, you know, 87-year-olds will tell you how they don't want to go to a nursing home because there's all these old people. Um, so adult day programs allow people to stay at home without spending long days alone in front of a TV set while you, somewhere else, are worrying about are they eating? Are they taking their medications? Are they just lonely and understimulated? Social isolation, we have learned, is very dangerous. It leads to depression, leads to health problems. So an adult day program will, you can go two days a week or three days a week or five days a week. A little van will come and pick up your elder relative and take him or her to this center where there are activities, art, exercise, discussion groups, there's, besides the transportation, there's hot meals. Uh, many places there's a nurse monitoring blood pressure, making sure everybody's taking the proper meds, and it allows for the possibility of friendship, which is important at any age. Um, it is very easy to say, I'm never leaving my house, and we applaud that as it's sometimes called aging in place. If aging in place means the only person that you ever see, besides perhaps the mail carrier, is the person who delivers your meals on wheels. This is not what I would call healthy aging. So, um, and some of these programs, by the way, these adult day, pro day programs are also appropriate for people with dementia, which is probably the hardest thing to, man to manage. Um, they cost vastly less than any other kind of elder care. Some are nonprofit and they charge on a sliding scale. They let you, if you're the caregiver, take a break or work there's a lot of research on how helpful they are for caregivers and for elders themselves. And there are a variety of kinds of state subsidies, subsidies for veterans, other things that, that can cut the cost. 
So New York City has dozens of programs like this, and there's dozens more in surrounding communities. Um, if your relative is able to sleep at home, but probably shouldn't be alone day after day um, with game shows, this could be a good solution, at least for a while. Um, and let me tell you also about a whole new profession, the geriatric care manager. Uh, geriatric care managers are independent professionals, usually social workers, whom you can hire to help with making decisions about elder care, making arrangements for elder care, overseeing elder care, especially if you don't live nearby. So if you've ever said to yourself, I need to clone myself so that I can be keeping an eye on my mother in Boca and holding on to my job and my family here, you can, in fact, hire that clone. She is, usually she, is a geriatric care manager. I should note that the national organization representing these professionals decided to rebrand itself a few years ago, and so now they call themselves aging life care professionals because they said people didn't like the word geriatric. Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but if you search online for geriatric care managers, you will still find them, and there are, I found 50 in Manhattan um, alone. What I like about geriatric care managers is that they work for you, not for the hospital, like a discharge planner, not for an insurance company, just for you, your family, and they will provide whatever specific services you tell them that you need. They are expensive, although maybe not to lawyers. At 150 to 175 an hour, that sounds like a lot to most people. Um, but they can do a lot in an hour. They can fight with Medicare about some claim that got denied. They can take a client to the dentist. They know which home care agency is the good one, and they can hire a home aide for you and then replace her if your mother fires her. Um, <laughs> or if she doesn't show up one day. They know the local community and its services. So a few years ago, I was moving my father, who was 88 then, from his apartment in southern New Jersey, which was 120 miles away from me and my sister. Um, and I moved him into a continuing care retirement community near me in New Jersey. It, that's one of those places with, you know, there's independent living, and then there's assisted living, and then there's a nursing home. Um, so um, I had visited one of these communities um, that was recommended by friends, and I liked it. But I knew what I was supposed to do, right, to be a savvy consumer. I was supposed to visit on a weekday. I was supposed to visit on a weekend when the staffing levels are lower. I was supposed to visit at night. And then I was supposed to do that at three or four places. And uh, or, or my sister and I could just hire a geriatric care manager who knew our area, and we could tell her about our dad and his needs and ask if this place would work for him, or if she thought some other facility was better. So she came to my house. She heard all about my dad, whom she hadn't met yet. She knew this place I had in mind in West Orange, New Jersey. Um, and she said, you're not going to do better than that. That would be a good fit. It sounds like right for him. I have some clients there that are also veterans like he is. I think he'd fit right in. So I said, thank you. Was that advice worth 150 bucks? Hell yes. Um, and, and my sister and I split the cost, so really it was only 75 bucks. Um, just a bargain. Um, a geriatric care manager found us a senior move manager. You know how capitalism abhors a vacuum. Once there is an aging population, there are all these kinds of professionals who didn't used to exist and services that will help you out, and thank God. So a senior move manager to help my dad 
sort through all his belongings, pack up the furniture and the stuff that he was going to take, and sell or donate the rest. We decided to hire this person after I'd spent a weekend discussing with him every pair of socks that we were either going to take or not take. And I, I thought we could discard them. He said, oh, you never know. So <laughs> at that point, I thought, senior move manager, let them have these discussions. I'll go do something else. She also, um, you know, so she had a crew. They packed them up. They moved them. She had already gotten the floor plan and figured out where everything would go in his new apartment. Um, and yeah, she put the price. I used to worry about vacations. If I went away for a week, wouldn't that be the exact week that my father would fall or need to go to an ER? Um, but my geriatric care manager was on standby. I told her I was going away. If something happened, she would accompany him to the hospital or to the doctor, and then she would report to me, everything's fine, cool out, cool out, or she would say, you'd better come home. So um, I really recommend these people. I think it's really useful. Um, there are lots of services for older people, and some of them are more useful than others. This is the one. I just had this conversation yesterday with a friend. I'm going to Florida to help my mother. I have to hire somebody for her. I said, three words, geriatric care manager. Um, finally, in this room full, I assume, of lawyers, I want to remind you about advanced care directives. I'm sure you've all done the paperwork, and your older relatives, and you, yourselves, I hope, you have a health care proxy or power of attorney for health care, and you have specified, or they have specified in those documents, who will make decisions for them in the event that they can't direct their own care. And they have documented what they want done, and possibly more important, what they don't want done. Uh, and even more important than that, they have discussed those wishes with whomever they designate. Because when your father is in an emergency room, trust me on this, the doctors are not leafing through your document. Hmm, what does it say on page 14? They'll just be saying, where's the family? Where's the family? Call the family. What do you want us to do? So even though it's important to have the documentation, in the event of an emergency, the conversation is actually even more important. So let's say that you've, excuse me, you've documented all that in the advanced directive. Everybody concerned knows what the directive says, okay? Good. Now, do you know where it is? <laughs> Can you or other family members access it at any time? And do your relatives, primary care doctor and all their specialists have copies too? Because I frequently hear from ER staff, hospital staff, hospice staff about patients whose directives, fully notarized and just witnessed, are in a desk drawer at home or in a lawyer's office, or in a safe that nobody knows the combination to. These documents cannot do their intended job if you can't get at them really quickly. I used to keep mine in my glove compartment of my car, or you know, and, and uh, my sister had one in her purse all the time. Just be sure you know where it is, and also be sure it is updated, because if your parents crossed this off their to-do list 15 years ago, well, you know, good for them, and probably good for you, because I'm sure you encourage them to do that. Um, but in the meantime, if one of them has died, or if the person who has their power of attorney is now ill, him or herself, or has dementia, 
or some other factor has changed, the old document will not do the job, and so you have to make a new one. Also, I think you probably know that when a relative has a serious illness, you also want to fill out a MOLST form, M-O-L-S-T. People know about this? Okay. Some states call it a POLST, Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, but in New York State, we're so uh, unusual, it's called a MOLST, Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, if your relative is in a nursing home or an assisted living or needs long-term care at home or seems likely to die within a year, this is when you need a most. It's not for everybody. It's for people who have a serious life-threatening illness. And the difference between a most and a general advanced directive is the patient fills this out with a healthcare professional, with a physician or a nurse practitioner, and then it literally becomes doctor's orders. That's why it's called medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. It travels with the patient in the emergency room, in an ambulance, in the hospital. It goes with you. And it specifies very specifically, does the patient want to be resuscitated? Does the patient want to be in an ICU? Does the patient want to be intubated? Does the patient want a feeding tube? Does the patient not want any of those things? Does the patient want some of them, but not others of them? It's the best bet for having your end of wish and end of life wishes respected. And uh, I don't have one yet because I don't have a serious illness, thankfully. But I do have an advanced directive that I wrote up myself. It is, I'm convinced, the world's most specific advanced directive. And what it basically says is, don't do anything. So um, I could go on, but I think we'd probably rather hear about music, um, but I will, before yielding the floor, express my great respect for family caregivers. This task can last a really long time these days because we can keep people alive longer. And it's harder than it used to be because um, spouses and sons and daughters are asked to do things that, like, like dress wounds, do dialysis at home, give injections. This is stuff that RNs used to do, and now families are asked to do it. And nobody really says thanks. And often, not especially not, the older person that you are working so hard to take care of, that person doesn't say thank you sometimes, too. So I keep waiting for people in Washington and Albany and Trenton to recognize how crucial this job is. If we had to actually pay people to do all the tasks that family members do, it would bankrupt the nation. And so they should at least say thanks, and how can we help? And we could wait a long time to hear that. Um, so let me say it now. If you're one of these people, thank you for what you do, and thank you for listening. Our final speaker is Amy Nathan. Amy is an award-winning author of three books about music. One for kids, one for parents, one for non-professional musicians. Her latest book, called Making Time for Making Music, How to Bring Music into Your Busy Life, and I see a copy of it right there, and there's one out in the hall, full of success stories about people and it proves that we are never too old to learn 
how to play instruments or to sing or to dance or to make music. Amy was a panelist at last year's third annual symposium on positive aging in Manhattan. She is a resource who connects music lovers with or without experience to music making groups where they live. Welcome, Amy Nathan. I can't see if I can get this, this sit, how far away from the microphone. Okay, you can all hear, good. So the, um, thank you so much, Paula and John, for uh, sharing, us, sharing with us really wonderful stories about the old, old. So I'm not going to just talk about the old, old. I'm going to be talking about people that are younger that are going to wind up being in the old, old. So um, some ideas for how to get ready yourself. Um, because as John said, I really like that quote that he had, happiness is a choice you make, and also that you define yourself by the things you can do. So I'm going to give you some ideas for some things you might want to add to your list of things that you can do. Um, I'm talking about music. Um, so uh, music is uh, as, well, let's see if I can get this right, okay, as a uh, Nina Krauss, who is a professor of neurobiology at Northwestern University, says making music is one of the healthiest things we can do for our brains. Because that's because making music changes your brain for the better, and the changes last a lifetime and even kick in if you only start making music late in life. That's because music is a multitasking experience. It really gives the brain a workout. It requires all different parts of your brain to be working together, and um, it actually activates more areas of the brain than doing just about any other activity. That's because it's a multitasking experience. If you're playing an instrument or you're singing, you're doing a physical action. You're also reading a score. You're remembering what you're supposed to do when you see the notes of the score. You're listening very carefully to make sure you're doing it the right way. You're coordinating with other people, and you're also expressing emotion. Um, and uh, all that cross-brain communication creates new neural pathways in the brain, and those new neural pathways can give you what's called cognitive reserve. That means that can give you maybe... Um, can lessen some of the effects of uh, cognitive decline that comes in as you reach the old, uh, old age. Um, because when cognitive decline begins to arise, those new neural pathways that you've created through making music can help you figure out how to do things in other ways. So, um, uh, but that's not really the, the, the reason that uh, the people that I interviewed for this book do music. They're not really thinking about creating new neural pathways. They're making music because of the joy it brings them. Um, I interviewed more than 350 people for this book. Um, either they filled out an online questionnaire on their experience with music, or I interviewed them by phone. And um, quite a few of them were lawyers. All the ones you see here were lawyers, uh, and three groups of them are in ensembles that are sponsored by the Chicago Bar Association. The other one is a returning lawyer. He used to be a police officer and has gone back to saxophone. 
and the one at the lower uh, left is a, um, a former lawyer who uh, uh, went back to piano after he retired. Um, the, all the, the members of this advice team ranged in age from 25 to 96, and um, they, they're, they're feeling that making music gives them joys has actually been supported by the research that has been done. Um, researchers have found that making music, whether playing an instrument or singing in a choir, makes people happier and healthier, so much so that maybe read in the paper recently that the uh, Secretary of Health for Britain has, uh, is now proposing that physicians could be able to write prescriptions for people to become involved in music and art activities as a, uh, as a medical intervention. Um, the people on the advice panel pointed out that actually engaging in music is like having a mini vacation every time you do it. That's because, as one said, uh, once you start playing, a calmness comes over you. Uh, another woman who plays flute said, playing flute is totally absorbing. Day-to-day -day worries are completely blocked from my mind. That's because it's a multitasking experience. You really can't really do music and be worrying about the shopping list or what the bad thing that happened at the office or whatever. It really does, you really focus on just the music. And as another one said, when you are playing with others and it is going well, you feel as if you are soaring. You are moving as a unit and there is a feeling of community. Uh, other people pointed out that you end up a with a really cool group of friends. And, uh, but some of the people on the advice panel thought they actually had it better than professional musicians. As one um, New Yorker who's a, a data analyst said, I've derived more pleasure being an amateur musician than I think I ever would have being a professional. He explained that um, I get to focus only on the music that I like. I can take a break and recharge anytime I need. I can take risks, do things I'm bad at just to push my boundaries. If I had to focus all my waking hours on the aspects of music most likely to pay my bills, I'd enjoy it a lot less. And he explains that there's an idea out there often passed on to music students that the only true way to make the most of your musical gift is to become a professional musician. This idea does a lot of harm, he says. You don't have to be a professional runner to get the full benefit of running. There's a lot of value in having a society of people who make their own art in their off hours. Uh, but despite all the wonderful benefits there are from making music, it is hard to fit it into a busy life. Um, there's the time gap, figuring out how you're going to find time to add music to your life. There's the information gap, not knowing how you're going to engage with, in music um, if you have another full-time job. And there's the confidence gap, probably left over from less than positive experiences you had as young people in music. These are all gaps that posed obstacles for many of the people on the advice panel who didn't automatically um, engage in music after they graduated from college. It took them a while to figure out there really was a way that they could become active again in music or to start out in music. Uh, these five people prove that the time gap can definitely be solved because all five of them had given up on music for a while and returned. And they're all busy professionals, lawyer, statistician, cardiologist, data manager, and orthopedic surgeon. They came back 
to uh, music after they had a full-time career going and uh, found that they could make ways to f make time for music. And actually, it didn't take as much time as you might think. Um, let me see, 5% of the people on the advice panel don't practice at all at home, so they don't have to find time for practice. Um, a quarter of them only practice one or two days a week, and 15% of them, when they do practice, only practice for a half hour or less. Now, many of the people in the advice panel practice more, but uh, the data shows that it is possible to enjoy making music with only a very modest investment of time. Now, as for the uh, information gap, you all are very lucky. You live in New York City, and there are tons of opportunities here for making music as a non-professional musician. And two of them are right here at the Bar Association, and I have a flyers outside from the City Bar Chorus, which uh, rehearses on Tuesday nights, and they give several performances a year. They have auditions, I think it's in August. There's information on this flyer. And uh, there's the City Bar Chamber Music Series, which takes place on Fridays. Um, their next concert is on March 15th. Um, but there are many other options for music in New York City. Uh, music schools have discovered the uh, baby boomer generation. As the baby boomers began reaching retirement age, in, age with um, more free time and an interest in getting involved in creative activities, music schools began providing more um, programs for them, workshops, classes, ensembles, um, flexible lesson schedules. Um, there's also meetup groups in New York City, uh, support groups where you can go and, and uh, interact with others who are doing this, and many ensembles for um, um, engaging in music if you're not a professional musician. There's a flyer out there with uh, lists of all different kinds of possibilities for you. Um, and some of these um, ensembles are for people who are age 50 and older. They're for older adults. And uh, so that brings me to another obstacle that some people face is feeling that oh, I'm just too old to do this. You know, I waited too long to go back to music. I waited too long to get involved in the first place. Well, the people in my advice panel told you they go up to age 96. Um, they proved that you're never too old to get uh, involved in music, and the neuroscientist that I interviewed said the brain's plasticity lasts through the lifespan, so it's always possible to learn new things. And these uh, people on, on this screen that you're seeing up here, they all started in the music that they do, which was new to them after um, over the age of 50. Um, the, the woman on the upper left, she decided to play violin when she was 70, and she switched to viola when she was 75. The fellow on the lower right um, decided after he retired from being a political science professor that he wanted to be a composer, and he realized he really needed to know how to play the piano to do that. So at 79, he started taking piano lessons, and at 80, he started taking composition lessons, and he has since written pieces that other musicians perform. Now, in New York City, there are ensembles specifically for people over the age of 50 who are total newcomers to music. They're called New Horizons Ensemble. And the woman in the middle at the bottom, she plays in a New, um, New Horizons band at Third Street Music School. Um, and the woman who started um, violin at age 70, she plays in one in, um, in, in Cincinnati. 
Um, and there are also um, uh, choruses for uh, people over age 50 called encore choruses that um, do not, you do not have to already be a, a choral singer to engage in. You do have to, I think, have an audition for the city bar chorus. So you could go to the encore chorus, get good at your singing, and then apply for the city bar chorus. And that brings up another uh, problem that blocked many people from getting involved in music. The can't sing myth. This idea, a lot of people, a lot of adults had this idea, oh, I just can't sing, you know, oh, not me, I can't sing. Well, um, as one of the people who came to singing as an older adult said, the, the default thinking in this country is that most people are bad singers and only a few lucky people are very good. This is an unfortunate hoax. And the experts on singing and on um, otolaryngology that I interviewed said this is true. Just about anybody can learn to sing. It's very few people can't. They have something called amusia, which is very rare. And if you have that, music sounds like noise. So if you can talk and you can tell the difference between one note being higher or lower than another, then you can learn how to sing. Now, some people can learn to do this easier than others, and that's probably why you think you can't sing. But, um, and maybe you even had the experience as this fellow with the banjo had. When he was in kindergarten, he said, the singing teacher said to him in class one day, he pointed to him and said, you there in the back, just mouth the words. <laughs> okay, you're laughing at this, okay? Um, I never sang again until I was nearly 60, not in front of other people, not in front of the dog, not in the shower. I felt I couldn't sing. Um, several people in the book had the same experience, and luckily it is possible to get over that feeling. Now, um, I, when I've given the talk to different groups on this book, um, I have the reaction like that. So have, have you, any of you ever been told that? Just don't, don't sing, okay? All right, so that's probably some harried teacher was trying to get the class ready for the holiday concert or something, and they just wanted to ha simplify their lives. Well, I have talked to today's music teachers, and they maintain that this is very old school, they don't do this anymore, and that now they realize that learning music is a developmental process, and so for the poor children who can't do this automatically like their classmates, you keep working with them, and you teach them where in their, in, their, in their mouth they should place the sound and how to use their breath to produce the sound. So it is possible to learn. And as I said, there are these um, choruses now called Encore Chorus in New York City where they take people and they show you how to sing. And just the act of singing together with other people helps people sing better. Um, uh, it helps you open up and, 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 and give more and, and do better. Um, you might want to take a few refresher um, singing lessons, um, but as one of the otolaryngologists says, you don't need to take years of lessons to sing in a community chorus or a church choir. Um, another thing that helped kept some people back was the idea of recitals. You remember recitals when you were a kid. You hated them, and you never want to do that again. Well, you don't, because recitals are optional for adults in music schools. But one-third of the people on the advice panel have actually come to like recitals because it gives them like a benchmark so they can see that they actually are making progress. Now, this woman, she um, retired and went back to piano, and she said she was never going to play in a recital. Um, and her teacher began to work on her and persuaded her to play a jury. This is where you just play for another teacher who isn't your teacher. 
So she did that, and she got some very helpful suggestions from this person. He wasn't mean at all. And so she has decided that she likes recitals. She does recitals, and she plays concerts now. Um, and she said, as long as you're not afraid to take a risk, you're not really old yet. And um, one of the lawyers on the advice panel pointed out that you all are, are lucky because she said uh, a good cure for a feeling of performance anxiety is just to remember that no audience is ever as hostile as an angry client or a mean judge. Now, another thing that keeps people back from getting involved in music is they think, well, I have to get a teacher, and maybe you really didn't like your piano teacher when you were a kid, or the band leader in school band. Um, maybe that person really kind of killed the joy of music for you. Well, the people in the advice panel point out that the relationship that you have with a teacher as an adult is totally different than the relationship you had as a kid. Um, both the teacher and the student realize that it's not the mother who's paying for the lessons, it's the student. And so the, the teachers are much more collegial. They uh, let the student decide what the point of the lessons is, and they adjust their teaching accordingly. And then if the teacher's not giving you what you want, says this former banker, um, we have the ability to change teachers. Um, and there are many options besides having teachers in a one-to-one -one lesson. Only 50% of the people, when they filled out the questionnaire for me, were, um, have, uh, were having lessons from a, a, a teacher. That they were getting their instruction in other ways. There you can get coaching in workshops or in summer camps. There are summer camp, music camps for adults. And the adults in the, uh, in the advice panel who do those camps love them. They look forward to doing them every year as the high, the high point of their summers. Um, there are, you can get a lot of information online um, that can help with practicing, which is yet another thing that keeps people from wanting to get into music because they hated practicing as a kid and they don't want to do that again. But again, they point out it's a totally different experience as an adult. And that's not just because your mother's not bugging you to do it anymore. It's because um, they, a lot of the people see it as an intellectual exercise, trying to master you know, little bits of this new piece that you're trying to play, um, trying to engage with some of the greatest minds of music literature, um, being part of this music that you've enjoyed for so many years, hearing you can be part of making. Um, and uh, it also gives you, like I said earlier, a mini vacation. While you're working on trying to master that next phrase in your piece, you know, you really can't worry about all the other things that are bothering you. And one of the women who went back, who had a terrible teacher in her childhood, who really killed her interest in music, although she loved the piano, when she got old enough and had a job where she could afford to buy a piano, she bought it, she went back to refresh her lessons at the local conservatory and luckily found a teacher who was very supportive and told her, play five notes and be an artist. So you don't have to wait till you master the whole piece. You don't have to wait until you could become like you know, Pavarotti. Or Just each little part that you master and that you can um, learn in learning this, this new music that you're working on Play it as musically as you can. Really enjoy it. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the process rather than waiting and delaying journey for some um, perfection day that will never come. And that's another obstacle to overcome. 
perfectionism. Now, I know that's really hard for lawyers to deal with, right? I mean, you've trained all your life to not make a mistake before that judge. But really, if you can sort of lessen the perfectionism, you'll have a much better time. Now, this gentleman here takes part in a um, New Horizons band in, New, in Montreal. And the motto of New Horizons ensembles is, your best is good enough. And that can really take a lot of pressure off, a pressure off of practicing, a pressure off of rehearsing, a pressure on the performances that you do. The performances are maybe fun, they may not be great, but your, your, your family and your friends are going to love them anyhow because they're going to be so impressed that you can do this thing that they haven't had the courage yet to try to do. They're going to really love it. And another problem of getting back into music or starting anew is that you have to become a beginner again. And that's really hard for adults. You all are used to being treated as being really competent professionals, right? But if you haven't touched that violin for 40 years, you're going to go back to it, you're going to need some refresher lessons. You're not going to sound very good at first. It's going to take a while to get back into um, playing the way you used to play. So as uh, these, the members of the advice team point out, you have to allow yourself to be bad at first because it's going to get better. So I'll leave you with this last bit of advice from the advice panel. Stop thinking about it and do it already. Life is too short to be afraid of increasing your happiness. And these people, as you can see, are having a great time. This is the um, orchestra of the Alfred Street Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, these are all people with non-music day jobs, and they perform in services maybe like twice a month, and then they play other concerts in the D.C. area. And this is the church that the Obamas used to go to uh, for Easter services when they were in the White House. And as you can see, they have a ball playing music. Um, they have found ways to fit music into their lives. So this is the time for questions and comments and audience participation. And I will start it off. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that I'm here in part because of my dad, who turns 99. He grew up in the Bronx, and he had very little education and worked very hard. And when I was growing up, he would sing all the time. He would come home from work, and he would sort of dance around and sing. And he taught me that happiness is a choice. Because as his life went on, there were times when very difficult things happened, and he had to pretty much reinvent himself. And he was just an object lesson in <coughs> optimism. Um, and every year that we'd celebrate his birthday, we'd be like, and it's really important because there's not going to be another birthday. We started saying those like in his 80s, and at this point it's just a joke. We're just like, okay. Here we are. Yeah. But, uh, he has not got as large vocabulary as he once did. He's had several heart attacks and has suffered from aphasia. So there's a limit on our conversations and they start to go into a loop. But if I sing any kind of song from the old days, from his religious affiliations, from more recent times, he automatically sings from beginning to end perfectly every word. Right. It's just incredible. It's the last thing to go, really. 
That was true of my mother. My mother had serious Alzheimer's. But if you started her on her songs, she could do it. She also was an amateur actress. And if you started her on Shakespeare's um, um, words to the players, she could she just go off and do it. She could do all these soliloquies from Shakespeare. But she could definitely do songs. Um, and she could sing all these old. Her father was a vaudeville star. And so she, she used as, um, as um, um, lullabies for us when we were kids, these real body vaudeville songs. And so there she was in her, um, in her assisted living facility, um, standing up singing these body vaudeville songs. She knew all the words. So, yeah. Well, I think there's a lessening, you may know more about this, Father, there's a lessening of inhibitions at some point, and it can become embarrassing when I'm visiting my father because the inhibitions that he used to have are disappeared. Well, yeah, it does go with dementia sometimes that people become disinhibited, um, but I think the people around them understand that, and uh, I don't... There's a wonder... It's the least of their problems. I find it enjoyable. <laughs> I don't know if we have anybody who wants to ask any questions at all. Please, Brent. We were on the subject of music, and um, I just wanted to introduce Catherine, who's sitting next to me. She is an incredible um, music player. She's a music sanitologist. I met Catherine when I was becoming an end-of-life doula, and uh, I took a course of study for about six months, and I became and Catherine was um, incredible in terms of what she does. So she goes into places where people are dying actively, and she plays all for them. It is incredible. But my question, I guess, for Amy was whether or not, and you should talk to Catherine afterwards because she's an incredible person. Um, hmm. But Amy, has anybody ever studied the thing about why music um, tends to stay as people you know, age and have um, dementia? Ah. So that was kind of unusual, and I'm wondering, is there some sort of like physical, physiological, medical reason why that one thing happens to people? Yeah, there, there is this wonderful um, um, movie called Alive Inside. It's a doc, it, it, you might want to get it's that. about the uh, people who were um, catatonic and then were, right. yeah, we've seen that. Right, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. What is that movie? It's called Alive Inside. So it's a documentary about to demonstrate music's ability to combat memory loss and restore a deep sense of self to those suffering from it. So these were people who were pre pretty much nonverbal. They were not non-responsive. And uh, people began to play music for them, and they began to come alive. They would um, give them a Walkman mm -hmm. or an iPod with music that was important to them. So it has to be... From, 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 yeah. their, from their teenage years. Past. Yeah, apparently. Right. Um, I think that's respond, yeah. Yeah. That, that's really important. They're responding to past music. It's not that they're responding very powerfully to, to current music. And part of the theory is that it brings them back to a time when they were masters of the situation. Right. The day-to-day -day stresses of coping with what's coming at you when you're in a state of dementia, really, really difficult. Remembering I'll be loving you always you know, puts you back to a time when you were in control of the situation. And that uh, removes some of the stresses that they're under and, and allows them to function a little better. Yeah, quite a few of the, um, of the people in, in the book um, are involved in, uh, their ensembles are involved in, in going and performing at senior centers, nursing homes, uh, and also end-of-life uh, centers. 
And uh, the advice uh, from, from uh, is to figure out what the age of the people are that you're going to, and when were they teenagers. And uh, then that's the music that you should play. Just to add to that, that's um, Dan Cohen's Music in Memory program. So if anybody wants to do that for their elders, that's, you can look that up. Hmm. Or sometimes they're called the unbefriended you know, in, uh, elders who live in um, facilities and stuff. It is a problem because um, we we so rel I'm sorry. Can you hear me? We so rely on family to do this that when there's not family or a lot of money, it, it's a problem. So there are different ways of trying to figure out how to do this. So one is um, that some people have tried to form a care committee. And they've designated, instead of like one person to make decisions for them, several people who will step into this role, one of whom is usually an elder lawyer to kind of coordinate. Um, and, 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 so, and tells those people what their values are and what their preferences are and relies on those folks to serve that role. Uh, it's not widespread yet. It's a little tricky. You have to pick people younger than you. Um, but it, it has worked in some places. Uh, and, you, and as with advanced directives, you have to update it if people move away and so forth. Then the other thing is there are, there are communities, sort of aff affiliational communities that are in a grassroots way that are trying to form to provide help for one another. So you may have heard of these villages that are cropped up here and there. Sometimes they're in a, uh, a town. Sometimes they're even in a building. Um, or, like the, you know, at 125th uh, and Broadway, there's a, one of these things New York State has called a NORC, Naturally Occurring Retirement Community. Um, different ways in which people live together, provide services for each other. Uh, usually in these villages, you pay um, a fee every year, and that allows the village to hire a coordinator who can do things like vet home care agencies, get people to replace the light bulbs in your ceiling, um, have uh, trips and social events, and try to create a community that wasn't there before. And there's even a concept called co-housing. It's hard to do around here because real estate is so expensive. But uh, a way for, and sometimes these co-housing communities, have, people have small individual residences, and then there are community, you know, uh, amenities. Uh, and uh, some of these are multi-generational and some are for seniors. So in, in lieu of the fact that like, unlike some countries, we don't have great governmental support, yet we have Medicare and we have Social Security, but otherwise there's not a lot of governmental support for people that are aging. We really rely on families, and when you don't have a family, you're kind of screwed. So there are all these experiments, I would say, kind of cropping up here and there to see if we can do this in a better way. Yeah, but, um, yeah, um, 
themselves at a crossroads. And I'm wondering, is it more important to live in more than 750 square feet? <laughs> or is it and or is it more important to have the, the things that um, uh, sure. create memories for you um, around you? You know, it's hard to get rid of your stuff, um, right. especially, you know, if you have projects that you work on or um, family history that you have. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Is it, can you just chuck it all and go into a little corner for the security of the next phase? I don't think, well, first of all, continuing care retirement communities have different models. So some of them, yeah, have these big buy-in fees, and then some of that is refunded to your heirs after you die. But some of them you pay monthly, like you would for assisted living or other places. Um, they're just these different models. But I don't think you have to chuck all your stuff. Most of these places have apartments. Yeah, they're small, and you can't take everything. But you can take the things that are most important to you. And um, frankly, you know, most of us have to downsize anyway, whether we're moving into a facility or whether we're just moving because we you know, don't need the four bedrooms and two baths anymore that suburban households typically have. In fact, one thing that I always think should happen more that, than it does is that in the suburbs where I, I live in Montclair, New Jersey, there are a lot of widows and widowers living in way too much house, and there are also people, young and old, who need affordable housing and who perhaps could drive or go to the supermarket. Or Why can't we have multi-generational housing in our own houses and let them help pay the rent and the taxes and provide some services, and you can give them a place to live, and people cannot be so isolated. I don't... I guess people are afraid of liability or something, but there are programs like this. New York has programs like this. I think that's coming with the co-sharing economy. I think with technology to bring people together, that's a very viable. Well, there, you know, there's one in White Plains. There's one in Brooklyn. You know, because obviously you want somebody to vet these people, right? You're not going to just like anybody come and move into your house. So there are these programs that will do this, and they'll do the credit checks and the background checks. Um, because there are too many people living in too much house in much of this country, and there are people who also need a place to live that doesn't cost $5,000 a month. So that should happen too. Hmm. A little different question for John. How, how did you happen to start this uh, project that became the articles and now the book? Uh, well, it kind of grew out of the census. So you looked at the census figures and you saw that one of the fastest growing age groups was this 85 and up group. And I went into it with this idea that I would write about older people the way we usually do, and which is a kind of malady of the month. And we'll say, well, this month I'll do a story about falls. And I'll profile some people who fell and broke their hip and then their life kind of went to hell. <laughs> and, and then next month I'll do a story about memory loss, cognitive decline. And I'll find some people who's memory started to go, and then their life went to hell. You know? <laughs> and then I'll do social isolation. I'll do people that have been you know, engaged in the world, and then they won't, and then their life will go to hell. And I felt like I knew how all those stories went. And I didn't, it was one of those things like, 
I didn't need old people to do those stories. I could just do that out of my head. And it would be much more interesting to let the people generate the stories. And so I just, instead of having, like often we'll get a new piece of research about uh, loneliness. And then we'll find four people that it applies to and get quotes from them. But it was, I went the other way around where I just found the people and let them dictate their, the way the stories went. I still thought they would turn out to be Malady of the Month stories, but I just thought they would come out of their lives. But then they just turned out to be a lot richer than that. Uh, how I found them was I just, I spent a month going, meeting as many people as I could, maybe two months. Oh, I promised you I would introduce the chairman of the Lawyers <coughs> Committee, and please feel free when we're done to come up and talk to Barry Bloom. <coughs> Thanks, Diane. Uh, there is a group, a new not-for-profit called Music on the Inside, MOTI. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I heard a, I heard a presentation from her. She came to uh, our Unitarian Church and uh, gave a program there. Yeah, it sounds like a really important program. Right, so they're bringing music into enclosed uh, situations like... Uh, Prisons, right. Uh, my question is, do you think that uh, music should be a required course in elementary and high school? Absolutely. <laughs> That, that's an easy question, yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, there are, there are a number of researchers are pointing out that this experience of this, this, this gentleman had where he was told to just mouth the words, um, that hasn't totally disappeared. Um, you know, people are, you know, not allowed, the, the, the band has to be, you know, audition only or, you know, you can't get the first chair or there's only some, you know, I mean, there's a lot of sort of discrimination that goes on within music programs that there are, but if there aren't even any music programs, there isn't even a chance for children to, uh, to, to have music. And if you don't get a sense that you have musical ability um, early on, then it's less likely that you're going to ever do music. Because uh, his research, um, this is uh, Stephen Demarest at um, Northwestern, has found that uh, young people who have a negative self-image of themselves in terms of music aren't likely to go on in music in any way. However they got that idea, whether from the teacher telling them to sit down and don't do any music, or from schools that don't have enough you know, teachers to really teach music. And then all these cognitive benefits, these are real cognitive benefits, they're not going to be able to benefit from that. And, uh, uh, and just also um, music is, a singing and music is like so basic to, to human beings, it's, it's a real tragedy that, that they're not doing this. But there are a lot of programs that are starting up now that are trying to take the place of the poor instruction in, in public schools. Um, these, I don't know if you've heard of these El Sistema programs um, based on the, um, the uh, Venezuelan, unfortunately, but um, um, programs uh, um, that produced um, um, Gustavo Dudamel, the, uh, the conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. He came through that, that was a free music classes, and there are now such programs. There's, there's several in New York City. There's a very famous one in Baltimore that's sponsored by the Baltimore Symphony where they provide free music instruction for um, children in uh, underrepresented areas. And um, it works. These kids um, 
that's been going for 10 years in Baltimore, and the first um, group are now graduating from high school and are applying um, to some, some of them are applying to conservatories, but others people are just applying to college for non-music uh, degrees. It really does make people smarter. I think we can just take uh, maybe two, well, we'll just take a couple more, but I want you to have time to get some books and have the speakers sign them. And so after we wrap up these last three questions, you can still come up and talk to the speakers. They'll be sitting here signing books. So one, two, three. Yeah, hi, um, I'm a psychologist at Nursing Homes, and I just wanted to make a comment that sort of ties everything together. I was uh, working on a unit where they had had a few losses of residents, and one particular woman that was very important to the staff. And there was another lady that decided she was going to stay long term, and so she she moved into that first woman's room, and then she brought her uh, her organ, her keyboard from home. And she used to play the keyboard in the nursing home, and all the staff at, and the residents would come around and listen to her playing. So it just goes to mm. everything that all three of you were saying, how much it meant to everybody on the unit, and how mm. it completely changed her and the whole vibe on the floor. Mm. Mm. So my question is, and thank you for that. Mm -hmm. my question is, does dance fall into the purview of music? Mm -hmm. um, no, but yes, there, there are. I don't know whether they're the same, but there are also cognitive benefits from dance and art, and you know all the creative activities. Music is particular in in involving so much of the brain, but um, there, yeah, there's studies that show that getting involved in any creative activity is beneficial. Also, just the effect that um, movement and exercise has on overall health, on cognition, on your mood. I mean, I would think dance would affect all of that, too. Mm -hmm. um, last question, Trudy. This is for, for Paula. Uh, you, you mentioned a lot of programs that seem to be able to help seniors. Well, I have the case of the very old elderly. Um, and uh, right at the moment, my 94-year-old mother is the caregiver for her 96-year-old sister. <laughs> and this is not a good situation. <laughs> and I have to say that I spent weeks on the telephone trying to find a social worker, trying to find how to get all the information, what is needed to enter a nursing home, how to find help for an incident that um, indicated some dementia, that nothing in northern Westchester. I had to find a social worker that was in Dutchess County to call me three days after the incident that needed help. And I am wondering what kind of infrastructure is there at all? It's very, had, yeah, it's, it's very patchwork. There actually is a lot of stuff, but there's no centralization. So, you know, there's a program here and there's a person there. But northern Westchester, there are geriatric care managers. This is what you need. Look on the, on the web. Not one person mentioned it. I heard. National Association Professional Geriatric Care Managers, now called Aging Life Specialists, but that's who you need. They well, why didn't the doctor tell me? Why didn't the nursing home tell me? Why didn't the police tell me? Why didn't the Adult Protective Services tell me? What agency knows that? I'm telling you. <laughs> I didn't have you. <laughs> Good thing you came tonight. <laughs> I mean, 
think we're going to wrap up and, and... I just wanted to respond to her. Oh, please. The, the Westchester County Department uh, for Senior Services has all kinds of information. Yeah. All you have to do is call up. I did. And zero. I was on the phone for a million hours. I'm home. Right? Appetite. Thank you all very much.